Would you please open your Bibles to Psalm 119? Psalm 119. In your pew Bible, that would be hmm, page 513. And that was just all a stall, so I could get a drink of water. It is my delight and pleasure to again remind you that this is the Word of God and not the Word of men. For that reason, we must give attention to it. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 49. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come again to this, your word, and again we confess our inadequacy both to preach it and to hear it. We are helpless unless you intervene. And so, Father, give us not only understanding of your word, but by the Spirit, transform us, remake us, shape us. Where there is sin, call forth repentance. Where there is ignorance, teach us. Father, give us grace that we might be transformed by the hearing of your word preached. This we pray in the good In the kind name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. As it has been my practice as we've been making our way through the Psalms, I want to bring a couple of introductory comments before we actually get into the text. As we look at this portion, or this stanza, 49 through 56, we're looking at suffering and ridicule as being the price that is to be paid for one's allegiance to God and to His Word. The suffering included affliction, derision, comfortlessness, opposition, being cut off from the people, even sleeplessness was more payments that needed to be paid because of the faithfulness that men had towards your word, such as the psalmist. The word gave hope, however. It gave comfort. It gave zeal. It brought songs to their lips and a resolve to obey. This stanza is much about prayer, much about suffering, but only one prayer is offered up. Some of the the stanzas, as we've noted earlier, it's just one prayer after the other prayer and after the other prayer. But you note the prayer that is offered up is quite significant. He says, remember what you promised. There's a whole lot that can be unpacked from that. All that God has promised His people, the psalmist is calling forth and saying, Remember, you have made these promises. Suffering is common, we should note as well. We live in a world that is ever seeking the life without discomfort, the life with happiness and peace and giggles all the time. But 
That is not the case. It never has been the case. It will not be such as that until the Lord returns. We live in a world that is full of sin, full of strife, full of difficulty. Not that we must live under the foot or the heel of such as that, but it is the world in which we are in. Suffering is common, and we need to recognize that God has made promises for us as to how to deal, how to cope with such. And the song, singing a song, doesn't seem to fit well with the whole idea of suffering. We'll look at uh, the Apostle Paul in a little bit as we see him singing in prison. Wondering what the acoustics would be like in that, but certainly it was an unusual song to be sung in the midst of imprisonment. But as we look at the, the simple declaration in our suffering songs are to be made, it is good to be reminded that singing psalms is part of our battle against these struggles, these difficulties, these trials. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, as if I haven't given the plug lately for singing psalms in worship, as you know I do when I get an opportunity to, that is one of the reasons I love the Psalter and why many of you do as well, because you're singing the Word of God. You're singing a, a collection of psalms that speak to every part of life, not just the happy moments and the good times and the good things, but it weeps with you, it mourns with you, it hurts with you. You embrace these psalms and sing these things as it gives you God's confrontation against the evil and the wicked and the tiresome. In Psalm 119, there is over and over again these exhortations about the law of God. We've talked about that a couple of times because the text reminded us of that. But there is a temptation to sort of think, well, Psalms 119 is about the law. Well, yes, it is. In fact, every verse has some statement or some word that points us to the law of God. But it is about other things as well. And as we look through the lens of God's law, we see that it is about God's mercy. It is about God's provision. It is about God caring for his people and providing for them as he has promised to. So let's look at the text, beginning at verse 49. And the psalmist cries out, the word of God gave me confident hope. So if you're going to be in suffering, and you will, if you're going to be struggling with difficulties in life, and you will, it would be a nice thing to have at hand some reason to hope. And that's what the psalmist brings forth to us for our good and for his testimony. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. You have caused me to have hope because of what you have said to me. Remember your word to me, your servant, in which you have made me to hope. First Chronicles seventeen twenty three, it says, and, and now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as you have spoken. Do what you've said you would do. The word gives hope. God promised he would be with us to protect us and to care for us, provide for us. We see evil triumphed over because he is with us. God rules over all things and the comfort of that is to be administered to our minds and into our hearts 
by that promise being declared over and over and over again. Even as you might with a small child who is going through the traumas of dealing with things that live under the bed or in the closet. Uh, it is reminders that we give, no, there's nothing there. And God's going to take care of you. Mommy and Daddy's going to take care of you. There's nothing there. The psalmist needed something akin to that. He needed a reason to hope. And, and so he cries out, calls me to see the promise which you have given so that I might have hope. God is perfect, and therefore what he has promised will not change. His promise is good for sure. God is faithful and will not break his word. Therefore, those who make God's promise their portion may with humble boldness put them, make them their, their answer. And so, finding hope from where God has said that it would be found, that as you think about it, God said, this is where you'll have help. This is where I'll provide for you. This is what I'll do for you. And it seems like a pretty good strategy as you think about it, finding hope from where God said we, we would find it. Calvin writes, he informs us that during the, his troubles and anxieties, he did not search after vain consolations in this world as this world is wont to do or is often doing who look around them in the quarters and find hope to mitigate their miseries through allurements, through entertainments that tickle their fancy. They may make use of these as a remedy for sorrows, but their misdirection does not bring comfort or help. The world gives hope and gives the promise that he, the, excuse me, the Word that gives hope. The world doesn't. The, the Word gives hope and gives the promise that God would be with him until the very end. All things work together for good for those who love God, Paul writes in Romans 8. In James chapter 1, we, we are reminded that, that these various kinds of sufferings that fall out upon us are good because they develop us, they grow us, they mature us to where we are lacking nothing. In First Peter chapter 1, a similar passage as we find in James. For faith is more precious than gold, and that is what God is doing as he introduces sufferings into our life. He causes us to be refined. He causes us to run to Christ. And is that not evidenced daily in our lives? It, it is quite simple to do a little self-experiment. When do you find yourself most anxious to pray? When do you find yourself praying the most? Well, everything's going great. I probably need to fall on my knees and pray. Well, that would be good. But it usually is, life stinks. I'm hurting. Life is difficult. Oh, God, help me, intervene, save me, provide for me. And so we find ourselves running to God and fleeing to God that he might fix us and make us. And the solution is, I've given you these promises. I've given you this word. I've given you this, what you are called to. Find your hope there. This is my comfort and not the pleasure, the wealth, the power, and the toys of this world. This is my comfort in my affliction that you promise gives me life. David benefited from the word as a means of sanctification. Thy word has quickened me. That's an old English word. It means to 
make alive or to enliven. It can be quickened as in being brought back from the dead. It can be quickened as being energized and given strength to a particular end. And so David benefited from the word as he grew in grace because the word strengthened him, energized him, caused him to look with great delight upon the word and to follow that which had been prescribed for him. David benefited from the word also as a means of consolation when he was afflicted and needed support. Calvin writes, The faithful in affliction experience vigor from the word of God. What then does the word of God do for you and I? What is the work that it accomplishes when we give ourselves to the reading of the word and especially the preaching of the word? How is it that we are changed and transformed by it? He quickens us by the word. It makes us new. He gives us a delight in himself, a delight in that which he has done. Verse 51, the insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Derided because he was a devout man, the wicked and the proud held him greatly in derision, doing all that they could to expose him to contempt. He had failed to be relevant. He wasn't fitting in. He wasn't connected to those who were religious and those who were not religious. He just didn't seem to get along with the world all that well. He took religion too seriously. Some of you likely have experienced conversations along that line. You'll be minding your own business. Someone says, well, you know, so-and-so got religion. You know, a little religion's okay, but you don't want to take that stuff too seriously, you know, and just be consumed with it or eaten up with it. But that's exactly what the psalmist repeatedly tells us to do. Be consumed with it. Be eaten up with it. Be all about that which God has said. And so they deride him because he was so faithful. He was so delighted in God. He loved the Lord God Almighty. And he was exposed to their contempt because of that. Because he would not give up the parts of religion that offended them. So he would not let slip an opportunity to do good for fear of the reproach of man. This kind of man, such as David, would continue to walk, though, as Calvin remarks, the dogs were barking. Calvin didn't like dogs, by the way. And so just stopping for a moment. Is, is that not here now? Do we not see that continually in the life in which we face the world? Uh, do not the world and the flesh and the devil all long to hear us say those magical words, Caesar is Lord. What's the big deal? Just saying Caesar is Lord. Then you can get back to your other gods. You can spend all your time with them. Just, just this one time, say this one thing and you'll be all right. But you won't be. And Paul would not break ranks with those who had gone before him and those who were with him. He would not confess that there was any God but this one true God. Casting aside the offensive parts of our religion is casting aside God. He was derided because honesty and piety renders the Christian obnoxious to the ungodly. You may get a good neighborhood smile, but you talk too much about Jesus, and you're going to be in a different category. You're going to be that person down the road who just is a little too religious. They were deriding 
the author of this. And Matthew chapter 10 says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in the synagogues. And you will be dragged before the governors and the kings for my sake. Twenty-one, Verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And children will raise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. Now, we're in America. And even better than that, we're in the South. And Southerners can be very polite, even when they despise you. And you need to be mindful of that, not to go out and stir up trouble, not to try to create discord amongst people, yourself included, but to be aware that what Christ says is that those who are my people are hated by those who belong to the devil. And those are the only two camps there is. And so he reminds us that, yes, Father will turn child over to be put to death. Yes, there, there will be children who will gather against their parents and turn them in. And though these things may not be happening in such a fashion in the world as we know it in this part of the world, but believe you me, there is much that goes on that is much like that. We are, as a nation, falling more and more headlong into this notion that we must accommodate every kind of sin and approve every kind of sinner. And if not, then whatever consequences can be forced to be paid will be forced to be paid. Comfort from remembering the rules of old. When I think of your rules from old, I take comfort, O Lord. He comforted himself. It was comfort for him to know that his suffering was for God's sake. His, his only flaw was his religion, as much as it was for Daniel as well. Remember the story of Daniel? His enemies said, we're not going to catch this man doing something wrong, because this is a, a righteous man. We need to think of some means by which we can catch him in some particular flaw with his religion. Now, there was no flaw with Daniel's religion, but in their minds, such was there. And so you remember the story and the great statue and the bowing and also the three sons of Israel who were called upon to face the fiery fiery trial. These stories we've learned and have heard in early grades of our church life over and over again. But as we look at this text tonight, we are reminded that those who suffer for Christ will prove that in the end, the reproach of Christ is greater wealth than the riches of Egypt. Comfort is ours because we take note of the rules of old. We are comforted by the Lord our God. He comforted himself with the remembrance of God's judgments of old, that God did respond. God is not a passive God. Sometimes we think, well, why isn't God doing things? Well, there's one good reason, because he's not wanting to do something right now. In spite of the fact that we sometimes are ready to sort of kind of just forward him our calendar so he'll know what days we are open for him to do certain things. Uh, He is doing according to his own good pleasure. And we trust that he will accomplish all that needs to be done. And the psalmist is remembering the old days that God did judge his people. God did judge the heathen nations. God did act 
and you look from this vantage point and you're thinking, wow, yeah, God is, and he is the same God doing the same thing. It's just he's not on any man's schedule, but rather his own schedule. The rules of old are played out as God takes vengeance upon the ungodly and confirms that he has spoken. We learn that God exercises his superintending providence over the human race. We learn from the rules of old that God will judge the wicked. We learn from these rules that God will persevere his people, preserve his people, so we are not left in the hands of luck or blind fate or anything akin to that. God judges. The rules of old do remind us the law in the past was applied God judged, God killed, and he continues to do so. In verse 53, we get a little bit of a, pa- a little bit of a declaration of the passion of God, not of God, excuse me, of the psalmist. Look at 5, well, just listen, 5-5 five, five of Psalms. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate evildoers. 1 Peter 5-5, five, five. likewise, you are younger be you younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God hates the wicked and opposes the arrogant, opposes the proud. Well, this is uh, another little place that the Christian culture of our day has rewritten script. You've been told, you have likely heard, maybe you have said, well, God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. Now, there's no easy way to get around that. There's no way you can say, well, what, what he really means by hating the sinner is that, okay, there is no other way of saying it. God hates the sinners. He will judge them. If they do not repent of their sin, they will be damned. God does not send sins to hell. He sends sinners to hell. And so as the psalmist writes, he says, Hot indignation seize me because of the wicked who forsake your law. I am angered. I am mad. I am upset. This is aggravating that these people continue to sin. We at times imagine that, well, that's just them and they'll answer for it. It is an assault against God. Sin and wickedness is not something we can stand back from and say, well, you know, that's how they're living. I'm going to live for God over here. The psalmist says, I hate the sin that I see taking place in my world because it is an assault against the Almighty. It is that they act as though he were nothing to be, and that he would not bother them in their doings. We are glad to see the wrath of God. Psalmist writes in 11.5, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. That God despises the wicked. He hates the ones that love violence. Terror seized him, seeing sin deeply grieved him. He detested the bold sins of the wicked. The response of the righteous, the response of the righteous to these sins of the wicked, he trembled to think at the dishonor done to God and the gratification to Satan with each sin 
the sinner takes the side of and enters into the service of the devil. It is to live in the realm of the Antichrist, to sin, to continue in sin, to fail to repent of sin, to fail to put to death sin, to fail to mortify it. And so the psalmist says, this just makes me mad. As you'd hear people in the South say, I'm so mad I could spit. And that's how mad he was that people would act as if God didn't have a right to tell them what to do. Horror had overtaken me because of the wicked who forsake your law. It is a horrid thing that the law is so despised. Note the character of the wicked. They sin and love it. Note the nature of sin. While all sin is sin, we hear that sometimes, all sin is sin. My response, which is a very philosophical and complex response, is yes, and all potatoes are potatoes. All sin is sin, but not all sins are the same. There are sins which are greatly heinous, and there are sins which are less heinous. There are sins that God speaks of as being such as that ought to have a millstone tied around our neck and thrown into the ocean. There are sins that are things that we struggle with. And so I would no wise give any room for any accommodation of any sin, for we must fight it all. But at the same time, we affirm and confess that there are blasphemies, there are wretched actions, there are vile activities that take place upon our earth that ought to make us mad. Even though we might say they don't touch us, they don't have anything to do with us, they ought to make us mad. For it is an assault against God and his law. Why all sin is sin, indeed it is. But there are those that are greater and go deeper and smell worse because they are the vile abandonment of anything good. He trembled to think of the dishonor done to God. Note the consequences of the sinner and of God's kingdom. Sin is a monstrous, horrible thing in the eyes of all that are sanctified. Jeremiah 5, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Jeremiah 23, but in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery, they walk in lies, they strengthen their hands of evildoers so that no one turns from the evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Hosea 6.10, the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Jeremiah 2, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. I find it interesting, just as a side note, that we tend to think of the bad sins as being the last six, or what we might refer to as the second table of the law, rather than thinking of the sins which are actually direct assaults upon God himself in the matters of how we worship, how we use his name, these things that are laid before us in the first four commandments. But you know, stealing and lying, these are things that may affect my pocketbook, may affect my comfort and convenience. Now, I'm not saying that the potatoes on the bottom half are not important, but I'm saying that the whole of God's law is to be heard 
And the psalmist, as he speaks concerning this, reminds us of such. And Jeremiah, as he records what was going on in his day, they had rejected his provision, God's provision, and had embraced a provision of those false religions around them. The psalmist is angry that people would sin against God. Would you not, even with your own spouse, with your wife or your husband, your sibling, your parents, would you not become indignant if someone were saying ill things about them, seeking to do them harm, saying things that true or untrue are not kind to be said? In verse 54, your statutes have been my song in my house of my sojourning. David's condition, he was a pilgrim. He was a sojourner. He was not of this world until this world was remade. For now his home and destination is heaven. He endured the troubles with a cheerful spirit. For he had a grasp of how things were being worked out. Unlike, not unlike Paul and Silas, Acts 16. You remember the story. It's a rather lengthy text I'll not read there. But you re- recall his confrontation of the people in Philippi with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone said, hey, that's not the stuff we're used to hearing. Let's, let's beat him up and throw him in prison, which they did. And then as the night came upon them, what would you imagine would be the, the, the songs and the music of a prison? If there was any singing at all, it was probably something that they had become accustomed to singing in a public house of some kind. It was certainly not a song that would bring honor and praise and glory to God, and yet it was for Paul and Silas, and for David it was similar. He sang of the glory of God. I will sing in the house of my sojourning. David's comfort, your law has been my song, and you have put gladness in my heart. Psalm 138.5, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. So, bringing the law in to measure the, and test all of this that is in the world, indeed, to vindicate the godly, to condemn the wicked, so we have reason to sing, because it is going to be sorted out, and it will be sorted out well. Finally, in the last couple of verses, 55 and 56, a control of the mind and a commitment or a committed resolve is here mentioned. Virtue is developed under the pressure of suffering. We become by this suffering more of a mind and more of a resolve to be that which God has called us to be. Verse 55 reads this, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Now, remembering your name in the Lord, if you take that as sort of a minimalist, someone who makes everything small, (laughs) if you take that in in such a fashion as that, you might say, oh, he remembers his name. Oh, that's that's nice. You know, I'm often well pleased if someone visits three or four times that I can actually remember them, their names so quickly. Uh, But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, oh, yeah, let's see, uh, God, God, what was God's name? Oh, yeah, Jehovah, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. No, I remember your name is, I remember you. I remember who you are. I think about you. When he wakes, thoughts about God goes through his head. What we wake up with ought to be telling as well. That 
My life is about God. My thoughts are about God. The remembering of God is the only remedy for preserving a great fear of God and the observance of his law. Remembering God will humble us and provoke us to godliness. I give myself a little theology lesson when my brain kicks in in the morning. I remember God and who he is. Forgetting God is the embracing of lawlessness. Psalm 78, Psalm 106 would speak to that. Because we keep God's law, God's work is the wages. We are not looking for great reward in this land. In fact, what the psalmist is saying in this last verse, the blessings have fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. He is saying, my paycheck for keeping your precepts is I get to keep your precepts. I get to do your law. I get to do your will. I get to follow your way. And so hope is found in the promise God has given to us. Comfort is ours in times of affliction because of that promise. God's law is my focus when the wicked trouble me, and they will. Comfort is remembering God's rules of old, knowing that these are not rules, these are not laws that just popped up yesterday. And we've got some new stuff we've got to do and some other stuff we've got to stay away from. We're not sure how it's going to work out in the community, but here we go. No, these are rules of old. They go back to the garden. And they are rules that God has prescribed for us. And as we stand here and look back at the garden, as we stand here and look back at those days of old, how has God treated the wicked? He has destroyed them over and over and over again. The unrepentant wicked have the anger and fierce wrath of God pointed right at them. And that ought to be kept in mind. Because we might, in this three minutes of our life that we live in, we might imagine that we're kind of getting a raw deal. That, look, they get to do all this fun stuff. And I just got to sit over here and be good. If the fun stuff that they're doing is contrary to the law of God, they will see the wrath of God. And there is nothing to be envied there. There is nothing to be concerned about that God is somehow loosen the reins. You know how it is, those of you that are grandparents. Why is it that grandchildren don't do nearly as many things wrong as children do? I don't know how it works, but it, it seems to. It, it doesn't. God is not a great granddaddy who's going to say, oh, well, old Steve, <laughs> he means well. Hey, boys will be boys, you know. No, I don't know. God's law forsaken should seize us, should captivate us with indignation. God's law is my song when suffering. I will keep my mind on you and keep your laws. I remember you and keep your law, which is why I keep your law, which is what I get for keeping your law. So where will we find comfort in a fallen world? I trust we can all agree there's sin about. There's stupidity about. There's all manner of wickedness about. How can we find comfort in a world that doesn't work the way the Bible says it should be? We find comfort in that God has promised that it is his thing. He will remedy it. He will answer sin. 
He will comfort his people. He will sort things out in the end. There will be some on the left and some on the right. And you know how that works out for some. May it please God that as we, this week, the week after, and until we finally find ourselves buried in the ground, may it please God to give us such an understanding of his law and his way that we with great zeal will move forward, hating sin, loving righteousness, and being faithful. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed frail little creatures. We at times flex our muscles and pretend that we're something, but we are just little pieces. But Father, you have, in your great kindness and mercy, brought redemption to us, that you have made us your children, which amazes us.